you when I pray. Somehow I don't remember that. Let's pray so they'll leave. No, just kidding. <laughs> Heavenly Father, Lord, we think on what we have just sung. We do need your mercy. We thank you that we've had your mercy in and through Christ. We're thankful that we have an advocate, one who ever lives to intercede for us. So Lord, help us as we come to your word this morning. We pray, Lord, that you would use this time to conform us to the image of Jesus Christ. Understanding that that is our greatest joy and how we bring you glory. So Lord, we ask this in his name. Amen. John Bunyan, I think many of you know him. He was a pastor, theologian who lived in England during the tumultuous 1600s. He's most famous for writing The Pilgrim's Progress. Although he wrote many other books and, and essays as well. Uh, but if you look into Bunyan's life, you're going to find that his suffering as a Christian was brutal. He was in prison for 12 years for preaching the word in opposition to the official state church. All he had to do to avoid prison was simply just not preach. But he sorely missed his family, a wife, four children, and especially his blind daughter. He wrote from prison, parting with my wife and poor children has often been to me in this place as the pulling of the flesh from my bones. And that not only because I am somewhat too fond of these great mercies, but also because I should have often brought to my mind the many hardships, miseries, and wants that my poor family was like to meet with should I be taken from them especially my poor blind child, who lay nearer my heart than all I had besides. Oh, the thoughts of the hardship I thought my blind one might go under would break my heart to pieces. But even despite all these hardships, he persevered. He, he stood firm with this deep-seated joy. Years later, in 1684, after enduring several decades of sufferings for Christ, he wrote an essay called Advice to Sufferers, and he wrote, God has appointed who shall suffer. Suffering comes not by chance or by the will of man, but by the will and appointment of God. See, that was a secret to Bunyan's joy and his perseverance through these difficult times. Over the years, as he walked with the Lord, he had come to trust in God's sovereign reign over his life. Brothers and sisters, I don't need to tell you 2020 has been a crazy year. It's been a hard year on many levels for our world, for our country, for our city, for our church, and it's not over. But if we're going to persevere with joy, then we desperately need to learn what Bunyan had come to learn. And I believe our text helps us in that direction. So we're going to be looking this morning at 1 Peter 5, particularly verses 6 through 7, if you want to turn there. Up to this point in the letter, Peter has encouraged these Christians with the truth that their sufferings for Christ are normal and, in fact, to be expected. Faith trials don't mean that the Lord has abandoned them. On the contrary, it's actually proof of their privileged status. They are, as chapter 2 highlights, a chosen race, a holy nation, a people of God's own possession, 
And this identity will clash with an unrighteous society. Every time, all the time, until Christ returns and makes things new. And since this is the case, when trials come, the question isn't to be, why is this happening to me? But rather, the question that should come to our mind is, how shall I respond in such a way that brings glory to my Father that lifts high the name of Jesus? How can I endure with joy? And so from our text, we're going to look at five steps to enduring 2020 with joy to the glory of Jesus Christ. And the first step toward enduring 2020 with joy to the glory of Christ is this. Believe in God's power. We must believe in God's power if we're to endure 2020 with joy. Verse 6 says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. That command comes in direct response to Peter's quote in verse 5, where he writes, For God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Therefore, because God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble, humble yourselves. Now, the words in this passage that Randall read, uh, humility, humble, humble yourselves, they're all different forms of the same word, but... Here, I believe the focus has shifted some. It seems that it's shifted. In verse 5, the focus was on their relationships with each other, right in the body of Christ. Uh, They're to live together in, in humility. But here, we see that the emphasis is on accepting their humble circumstance brought about by a world that is opposed to, to all things Christ. The sense here, then, is, is humbling is that of one who causes his heart to bow down. So the text has been otherwise translated as bow down beneath the hand of God. It's speaking of an action rather than, than a state of being. And the grammar is reflexive, which just simply means you do this to yourselves or they are doing this to themselves. So it's rendered as humble yourselves, or we could also say bow yourself down. Since God is one who opposes the proud, gives grace to the humble, since he is a God that consistently operates this way, humble yourselves before him. That is, accept your situation of humiliation in this life. Accept being under God's control. Our text isn't saying that we should think very low of ourselves, although there is a place for that in the Christian life. It's also not saying that we should be self-deprecating, although there can be a place for that as well. This is a, a command specifically, I believe, to willingly and actively accept your lot in this life as a sojourner, as an exile, as an outsider in the world's eyes, so that, as verse 6 goes on to say, God may exalt you. He is a God who gives grace. He gives favor to the humble. That's what he is like. That's his nature. Now, surely, I think there's this aspect of this that is applied to the moment of salvation. Uh, God gives grace to those who humbly accept as true the fact that they needed a bloody Savior to die on a, on a cross in a gruesome way in order to have their sins forgiven. Every believer, to some degree, has, has gone through this humiliation of humbling themselves, of coming to some sort of understanding of that reality. Their situation before this almighty God that we just sang is a humbling one. So all true believers have been humbled to some degree, but although that is true, and it certainly underlines, I think, the entire Christian life, we would all agree there, it seems, though, that our context favors looking at this as relating to their present distress. 
Peter's audience is already in Christ. They're suffering specifically in context because of their sufferings for Christ, their connection to him. And so I believe this is primarily encouragement to accept their present distress for the kingdom as part of God's sovereign plan for his people in these last days, in the days that we're living in, which is to believe in God's control, God's power. They're to humble themselves under the mighty hand of God. That phrase, mighty hand, is one that we find filled with meaning in Scripture. It's used, to my understanding, only this once in the New Testament, but it's a frequent Old Testament phrase and expression. In fact, I'm told the phrase occurs 70 times or so in the Old Testament. For example, we see this phrase particularly used throughout the Exodus event to describe God's deliverance of Israel. In Exodus 13:1, Moses said to the nation, Remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of slavery, for by a strong hand, can also be translated mighty hand, the Lord brought you out from this place. And then that phrase is used another three times in chapter 13 of Exodus and then multiple times throughout the Exodus narrative. So it would seem that Peter is, is drawing a correlation between these chosen sojourners who are truly God's people in Christ, their situation, and that of ancient Israel's. I think he's encouraging them throughout the text and affirming to them that they are truly God's people. And he's drawn a correlation here between ancient Israel's situation of humiliation, being in slavery to Egypt, and how God delivered them, how he exalted them. And so too, that same God, well, ultimately, the one who delivered ancient Israel out of their humiliation in Egypt is ultimately going to exalt his people in these last days. And he's drawn a correlation there. They should expect the same. They are God's people as well. They are a holy nation. So their situation is presently a humiliating one, but it's fully under the control of God's mighty hand. To speak of God's might or power is to speak of God's unrivaled ability to act as he wishes, whenever he wishes. Now, the great Puritan mind, Peter Shonach, or uh, Stephen Shonach, rather, explains the power of God is of that nature that he can do whatsoever he pleases without difficulty, without resistance. It cannot be checked, restrained, frustrated. The power of God is the application of his will to affect what it has resolved. And then the word picture we have here of God's hand speaks of his control. You know, we talk of maybe hands-on parenting. We would call that person a controlling parent. Well, God is a hands-on ruler. So the phrase mighty hand speaks to God's power and control over all things. God's control, we could say then, is his unlimited power and might that enables him to carry out his sovereign reign, to do exactly what he desires. So again, this isn't necessarily a call to cultivate a servant's heart, as Peter speaks of earlier here, but rather a call to willingly and gladly accept the reality that one's circumstances are under God's control or God's power. This is a charge to believe and embrace that truth. The, Purit the Puritans used to say that, that we need to learn to acquiesce to the will of God in our life. It's the same sort of idea. God is in control of all the events in the believer's life. So this is a, a command, an exhortation to willingly accept the Christian's humble station in this life. If you remember, Jesus taught how in this world you will have 
trouble, you have tribulation. And Paul explained to Timothy that all who desire to live a guided life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But God is powerful. He is mighty. He's in control. His hand is firmly directing all the affairs of the believer's life. Meticulously slow. So, <clears throat> so whatever happens to the saints in this world must be according to his sovereign plan for them. And so if Christians are going to please Christ in their circumstances with joy, they must believe in God's absolute power, his control over all things. They must believe in his ability to accomplish whatever he wishes in their life. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. Brothers and sisters, our God is all-powerful. He is almighty. What's going on around us, what's going on uh, within us in 2020 in particular is perfectly and completely under his power, under his control. Therefore, everything that has happened to us in 2020 must be his plan for us. And so this text, this text encourages us to be more concerned about humbling ourselves under his mighty hand than about changing our circumstances. We're encouraged here not to chafe against the discomfort that following Jesus Christ brings in this world. And then we're to embrace the unique opportunity that any uneasiness affords us. Brothers and sisters, God's not in his throne room wringing his hands over what has taken place in 2020. He's not frustrated with what has happened. We must believe in God's control, God's power, and we need to encourage each other in this. We need to be talking to each other about this regularly because it's so easy for us to get consumed in the moment, and this is one of the first things that slips our minds, particularly when we're in the middle of the struggle. And so when my brother and sister isn't in the particular struggle in the crucible, they know it's on them as they are thinking rightly to remind me to think rightly as well. That's how John Bunyan was able to trust in God's sovereign reign over his life with joy. He had come to know that nothing could happen to him that was beyond the reach of God's powerful and mighty hand. He embraced his imprisonment and he ended up writing several edifying books during the time that that imprisonment afforded him, which we know that the Holy Spirit has used throughout the centuries to encourage and exhort millions of saints. He understood that God's purposes were there in the midst of the trial. He understood that God had purposes in allowing his dear ones to suffer all the time, every time, regardless of the cause. Bunyan wrote that God's aim in these kinds of hardships is to awaken you, rouse you off your beds of ease, security, and pleasure, and fetch you down upon your knees before him to beg of him grace to be concerned about the salvation of your souls. To awaken you, rouse you off your beds of ease, security, and pleasure, and fetch you down upon your knees before him to beg of him grace to be concerned about the salvation of your souls. And when he talked about salvation of your souls, he wasn't talking about justification, you know, being transferred from the kingdom of darkness to, to the kingdom of light that happens at the moment of salvation, but he was talking about our perseverance, about our progressive 
sanctification. What he was saying is that, that, that God, you can, be, you can trust that God is going to use trials in your life to make you like Jesus. Your life isn't going to be easy because you're his, and it's not easy for a reason. Your life isn't going to be easy because God is going to use those hardships in your life, those challenges, those struggles to conform you to the image of Jesus. Since God is in control, because his hand is mighty, our sufferings must be by design. We can't just give lip service to this. This has to be something that we truly believe and that then changes how we respond to situations. We truly trust in this. And so Bunyan's sufferings for Christ were extremely difficult, but they didn't devastate him. He trusted the Lord because he knew that he was in control. He humbled himself under the mighty hand, under the power of God. He acquiesced to God's design for his life. And so step one, if we're to endure 2020 with joy to the glory of Christ, then we must believe in God's power. We must believe in God's power, but then step two, we must also embrace God's program if we're to endure 2020 with joy. We must embrace God's program. Or we could say we must embrace the suffering servant's way is the path toward exaltation. Again, verse 6 says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. We've looked at the command. Now we're getting to, to the purpose of that command. The command was humble yourselves. The purpose is in order that he may exalt you. The Greek word for exalt here means to, in, to, to cause enhancement in honor, fame, position, power, or fortune. Right? Humble yourselves. Bow down before God's powerful hand so that he may honor you, so that he may exalt you. Matthew 23, 12, Jesus said, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbled, humbles himself will be exalted. Same underlying words in the Greek, same roots. And I would submit to you that this is programmatic of the righteous seed throughout Scripture. In Genesis 3, we see the beginning of this pattern. The seed of the woman will prevail. Her seed will be bruised but will prevail over the seed of the serpent. Her seed, the righteous seed, will be exalted, and the serpent's seed, the wicked seed, will be brought low. Okay, this is the general hope that we see described throughout the biblical narrative. And so, for example, when Hannah finds out that she is uh, miraculously pregnant with Samuel, she says in her prayer in 1 Samuel 2.7, the, the Lord makes poor and makes rich, he brings low, and he exalts. Again, same underlying word in the Greek text of the Old Testament. But this is God's promise. This is his program. This is God's sovereign law of universal ethics, maybe we could, we could say. He brings low and he lifts up. And in the context of Hannah's prayer, we see that, that it's the righteous whom he exalts. God's enemies are destroyed, they're, they're made low, but the righteous, God's people, ultimately are exalted. And we see this program of universal ethics most prominently played out or fulfilled in the life of Jesus Christ, as highlighted in Philippians 2.8. Being found in human form, Christ, we know it's talking about, humbled himself, same wording as in our text, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, again, same words, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, 
so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. This is God's program because it always pointed to Christ. God has consistently worked this way throughout redemptive history because this is how Christ would ultimately be glorified. Jesus' path to glory, his exaltation was through suffering, was through embracing humiliation in this life. Isaiah talks of, of Christ's humiliation. He talks about he would be, how he would be despised and rejected by men. But even so, Isaiah 52, 13, amazingly foretells Jesus' future exaltation and says, Behold my servant, who we know he's talking about as Christ, shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up. Again, same underlying words there. So Christ's path to glory was through suffering, was through humiliation. So it seemed that Peter's charge here is to follow Christ's path to victory. We are Christ's followers. We walk in his footsteps. And Peter has alluded to this previously in his book, in this letter. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you just as he exalted Christ. It's coming. If you're in Christ, then you are permanently united to him. This is your identity in Christ that we like to talk about. Mysteriously so, we are one with him. That's what Ephesians 5 is getting about. This is a great mystery. Talking about marriage. But really, Paul is saying it's a great, great mystery how the church and Christ are one. You've been born again through the living and abiding word of God, chapter 1, verse 23. You've been, you're one who has believed in the cornerstone that the builders rejected, chapter 2, verse 7. And so since Jesus was rejected by the world and you were united to him, so you will be rejected. Life is not going to be easy if you are a Christian. Embrace that humiliation. Jesus' life becomes your life, but just as Jesus was exalted, so too you will be exalted, you will be lifted up as you are connected, as you are united to him. This is God's program for the righteous from Genesis to Revelation. Those who humble themselves are exalted and the proud are made low because God's son would be a humble king. He would humble himself and God the Father would exalt him. He would be rejected because of his righteousness. But it would be only a momentary rejection. He would want to be exalted. And so we embrace this narrative, trusting in God's power, his control, knowing that he's going to lift us up as he did Christ. And we see that he's going to do this in time. Okay, not in time as in due time, or eventually he's going to get around doing it one day, but as in a specific time. The word used here is often used in reference to the last days. In time, that is at a fixed date in the future, he will exalt you. And in Peter's explanation here, this time is most surely the day of Christ's return. Christians can rejoice in their sufferings for Christ because these sufferings prove the genuineness of their faith, which Peter says in chapter 1, verse 7, will be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Humiliation now, but exaltation later. When? At the revelation of Jesus Christ. At that time, when Jesus Christ is revealed in all of his glory, your faith in him is going to be vindicated, you will be lifted up. That's 
That's a sure thing as the sun will come up in the morning. So that is sure. Because of your connection to Christ, because you are in Christ, because you are his brother, because he is your king, his exaltation is your exaltation. And this exaltation is sure because it's God's program. This is God's sovereign design that always had as its end or its goal, Christ's exaltation. He will be glorified. He has been lifted up. And when we are lifted up and exalted, he is glorified. So because there's a promise that he'll be glorified, even more so we are sure that we'll be lifted up as we're connected to him because it brings him glory. Double insurance. It's a promise, but it's also tied to his glory. So our present lowly status is going to result in this lifting up. And so our lives are to be something like a mini enacted parable that highlights or actually calls attention to the glory of Christ's humiliation and subsequent exaltation. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. John Bunyan believed in God's power, his control over all things, but he also embraced God's program. Three years into his imprisonment, not knowing if he would be burned at the stake or, or hanged like so many who went before him, he wrote this little booklet for his congregation that would outlast him entitled Christian Behavior. In that booklet, he explained, Thus have I in a few words written to you before I die, a word to provoke you to faith and holiness, because I desire that you may have the life that is laid up for all of them that believe in the Lord Jesus and love one another when I am deceased. Though then I shall rest from my labors and be in paradise as through grace I comfortably believe. So he trusted in God's sovereign reign over his life because he believed, not lip service, not just a mere confession, but he truly believed and so trusted in and embraced God's program. Humiliation in this life, exaltation and glory in the next. So step two, if we're to endure 2020 with joy, then we must embrace God's program as well. So step one, believe in God's power. Step two, embrace God's program. And now step three, we learn we must believe in God's paternal concern. God's paternal concern. If we're to trust God's sovereign reign over lives with joy, then we must believe that God cares for us. Again, verse six says, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because... He cares for you. The Bible's so fun, isn't it? I mean, you, you got to read this and go, this is awesome. And I'm not, I'm not even a grammar buff. I'm like so far from a grammar buff, it's, it's not, even, not even funny. I don't really like grammar, really. It's not something I would say is fun, but this is fun. It's wonderful. If you're a Christian and you love the Bible, you have to like the grammar here. So we have the command in verse 6, humble yourselves. And then we have means by which we're to humble ourselves. We'll come back to this, but it's by casting our anxieties on him. That's how you humble yourselves. And then we're given the reason, the grounds to why we should cast our anxieties on him, because he cares for you. If you're a math person, this is just a formula for you. It's like algebra. So no matter where you are, right, if you're a grammar person, you don't like math, or if you're a math person, you don't like grammar, it's win-win. So Peter addressed this letter to those who, who are elect exiles of the dispersion. He writes this letter to chosen soldiers, to Christians. God cares for his people. Or more literally, 
you are a care to him or you are a concern to him. Our Heavenly Father has this paternal concern for his children. So the idea here is not that he is provider and so cares for us and then he meets our needs. Although we know that he does, he is our provider. But this word is more to the point that he cares about his children's well-being. His people and their plight are of interest to him. That's the idea. We are his paternal concern. You see, if God is uninterested or uninvolved in their plight, he might be powerful, he might be almighty, but that's not going to endear their hearts to him. And so then they might be grudgingly humble themselves under his mighty hand, but yet think of him as, as the almighty ogre. You know, they, they might understand, okay, he's powerful and things are outside my control. I can logically get to that point. But they might think of him as, as, a, as an almighty ogre. And the thought of spending eternity with such a God is not going to be sufficient motivation to trust him with joy through trials. Hallelujah, that's not the case. Peter's not calling for some form of determined fatalism. The charge here isn't to put on a stiff upper lip. Some sort of Monty Python sort of motivation or application. You know where the guy gets his arm cut off and the other person says, a mere flesh wound. That's not what Peter's saying. That's not to be our mentality. God is intimately involved in their lives. God cares. Believers are his paternal concern. They're very precious to him. Their plight, right, their sufferings for Christ, their sorrows and anxieties are all important to him. Their situation is on his radar, so to speak. And for God to care, for his people to be his paternal concern, it means he must know them and their situation intimately, and he does. He is omniscient. He is all-knowing. Psalm 139 confirms us of this and all throughout Scripture. He knows every minute detail about them. He knows every minute detail about you. He is fully aware that these saints have had a tough go of it lately. He knows this, and he is fully aware of your situation as well. He fully knows all the intricate details that are going on in your life. And so because of this, he has the ability to care to this degree in this way. He has the ability to care, but we also see here that he has the desire to care. It's his will to care. He chooses to care. God cares for his people. They are his concern. His face is toward them. Which is to say that he is for them for their good. His people have his special attention. That's why Jesus said, don't pray like the pagans do. Who went around doing all these things to try to, to try to get the attention of the Heavenly Father. You don't have to do something to get the attention of your Heavenly Father. You already have it. That was the problem with what was going on there that Jesus was confronting in the Sermon on the Mount. You already have his special attention. That truth's all over the Bible. We could take uh, forever proving this. David expresses this amazing paternal concern throughout the Psalms. So, for example, in Psalm 40, verse 17, he wrote, As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O oh my God. I think that's the idea here. God takes thought of his people. And that thought 
his paternal concern is connected to action. God knows. Which implies that, that he will deliver. Right? In Scripture, God knowing something is always tied with his action. And this paternal concern, this care is proven most profoundly in the gospel. God's already delivered. He's already acted on this concern for his people. As Romans 5.8 explains, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So God proved his paternal concern for us when he sent his son to die on the cross for our sins. When he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. His concern led to our rescue, our redemption. Christ's sufferings for us are to be this continual, this daily reminder of his care, his concern. So Paul goes on in verse 10 there of Romans 5 and says, For if while we're enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. So now that we're no longer enemies of God, enemies of God, God's care and provision is not somehow weakened, but obviously strengthened. That's what Paul's saying. If he expressed his paternal concern for us before salvation, if he had a concern for us before salvation, which was proved by him having this design before the foundations of the world to send his son to die on the cross for our sins, how much more so will he do this after salvation now that we have been fully reconciled? Now that we're no longer his enemies, but his children. The gospel proves this. This is precious news to any and all who are suffering in Christ Jesus. God knows. God cares. God has not abandoned you. And we need to encourage each other with this reality. God knows. God cares. He has not abandoned you. When we read the paper, when we watch the news, we need to encourage each other. God knows. God cares. He hasn't abandoned us. He is almighty. And his program ends in exaltation. We must believe this. We must believe this. And we need to encourage each other to act on these realities. You are his paternal concern. The creator of the universe. The one who made everything that we see cares for you and will act in time at the right moment. And the gospel proves this. We don't look to our circumstances. We don't look to our feelings to rest assured of this reality. We look to the fact of the gospel. You know, Christian biographies are, are my, my favorite fun reading books. And something that frequently pops up in, in honest biographies, not hagiographies, but honest biographies, is that when suffering is severe, Christians can despair and feel as if God has abandoned them. Even pillars of the faith will express this in honest biographies. Or, or they might think that he's uninterested in their plight. So the great missionary uh, to Burma, Adonai Judson, for example, was in prison for preaching Christ there. And for 11 months, he endured severe and inhumane conditions. And daily, he was under the threat of execution. That's a crucible, isn't it? And under that crucible, he despaired of life. He lost hope. In that crucible, God felt far from him. His biography, and I'm referring to specifically Courtney Anderson's um, To the Golden Shore, my favorite. So if you want to read a good biography, there's one if you haven't read it. 
His biography, though, that one states that, that he was ready to destroy himself, sin or no sin. This pillar of the faith. This is where the crucible put him. And it seems, based on Peter's tone and choice of words here, that these new believers that he's addressing may have felt that God had orphaned them as well. Having adopted them as children, now they were left to kind of fend for themselves. They were on their own. That's maybe what they felt like based off of context here. Their numbers were small. As they looked at each other, they weren't anything impressive. They weren't seen in any exaltation. And the mighty Roman Empire's disdain for them was probably scary and other opposition. When they looked out there, nobody was their friend. Nobody thought that they were cool, thought that they were slick. Nobody saw how great they were. Only Christ. And so they needed to hear, and they needed to believe this truth. They needed to hear it from each other on a regular basis. That was, that was Judson's problem. In prison, he was by himself. There was nobody to remind him of this truth and to encourage him in this. And so like Judson, Judson uh, these believers needed to embrace this reality, and so do we. They needed someone else to tell them, and so Paul tells them. God knows. God cares. We are his paternal concern. Brothers and sisters, no matter how bad things get, no matter how bad things are now for you, no matter how bad things may get, this is never going to change. He has not abandoned us. No matter what it feels like, and he will deliver us in time. And as we believe this, we'll be able to say along with King David, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. And so if we are to endure 2020 with joy, then step three, we must believe in God's paternal concern. Which brings us to step four. If we're to endure 2020 with joy, we must also believe in our own poverty, our own dependence. Again, verse seven says, casting all your anxieties upon him because he cares for you. This phrase is informed and governed by the command there in verse 6 to humble yourself. So as I just briefly went over earlier, the idea here is humble yourselves. It's a participle of means by humble yourselves by casting all your anxieties upon him. And this isn't going to happen to this isn't going to happen unless a person embraces the truth of their own poverty or their own weakness, their own utter dependence upon God, their own helplessness. So this is more of the how-tos of bowing under the mighty hand of God. Humble yourselves. How? By casting anxieties upon him. Which is much easier to do once a person is convinced that they are, his, that they are God's paternal concern. That's why I reversed the order of these for the moment. Right? Regardless of how bad these chosen sojourners' circumstances might be, the truth is that, that God has not and will not abandon them. Therefore, humble yourselves by casting all your anxieties upon him. So cast or throw off every anxious concern upon him. And, and the concerns here aren't specifically stated and outlined, but based on the context of Peter's letter, it seems safe to say that at a minimum and primarily, their concerns and anxieties had to do with society's negative or adversarial view of, of, of these Christians. Uh, that was the primary anxiety, I think. But obviously it would relate to other Anxieties as well. 
but cast these cares upon your father. And it seems likely that I think Peter's referring back to Jesus' teaching in Matthew 6.25 and following where he charged his believers, if you remember there, to be anxious for nothing. But Jesus himself seems to be reaching, when he's preaching there, reaching all the way back, I think, to and alluding to King David's words in Psalm 55. In fact, the language here matches the Old Testament much closer than it does Jesus' teaching in Matthew, Matthew 6. So Psalm 52, 22 says, or rather Psalm 55, 22 says, Cast your burden on the Lord, and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. In the context of that psalm, Psalm 55, is the persecution of the righteous, which is a fitting application to our text as well. I think that when, when Paul alludes to this, or Peter alludes to this rather, he's got the whole context of that psalm in mind. This is God's promise. Cast your burden on the Lord, and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. But for the Christian to do this, he must first understand and embrace his own poverty. You see, these chosen sojourners are never going to cast their burdens on the Lord unless they first understand their need, unless they first understand their dependency, unless they first understand their helpless situation. To to transfer cares from self to God requires trust and confidence for sure, But before that comes a certain amount of acknowledgement of need, a certain understanding that we are ultimately powerless to change our circumstances. And so that's step four. If we're to endure 2020 with joy to the glory of Jesus Christ, right? So we're saying endure 2020 with joy because Stoics can endure, but not with joy. And then someone who has convinced them of of some other means or or they convince themselves that enduring with joy is the only way that's going to make this life better. Somebody can do that, but they can't do it to the glory of Jesus Christ. So all of that kind of matters. So that's step four of enduring with joy is to believe in our poverty. And the chief expression of that understanding is prayer, which is the fifth and last step. To endure 2020 with joy to the glory of Christ, you must believe in God's power. You must embrace God's program. You must believe that you are God's paternal concern. You must embrace your own poverty. And so pray. So pray. Prayer is the means by which we make this transfer. And it's the primary application of our text. We throw our cares upon God through the act of prayer. We express to him our need and our own dependency through prayer. That's one of the main things that we're doing in prayer. In that act of prayer, we're expressing our neediness and our dependency. We could say then that that prayer is the ultimate manifestation of our trust in God's sovereign reign over our lives. And a lack of prayer would be the converse of that. A lack of prayer is a manifestation of our lack of trust and confidence in God's sovereign reign over his life and all these other steps that we, and points that we have mentioned this morning. So again, we need to encourage one another in this. We need to remind each other regularly through our prayers that we are desperate. When you pray, do your prayers reflect your neediness and your helplessness? 
I think we can encourage each other in our prayers by reflecting that neediness and dependence upon God in our prayers. If we believe in God's power, if we believe in God's program, God's paternal concern for us and our own poverty, then we're going to express our, our trust in his sovereign reign over our lives through prayer, which we know and understand glorifies our, our Redeemer. Prayer highly exalts our, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And this is because when we pray, we are proclaiming all these true things about God, about our Savior, and at the same time, we're also affirming true things about myself that are contrary to the godless worldviews that we see out there. The world is telling you, you can be the greatest. You can be the best. You know the song, you can be King Kong beating on your chest. That's what the world is saying. So when we pray, we're, we're, we're proclaiming that, that, that that's not true, that I am helpless. I'm not the greatest. I'm needy. But at the same time, we're also exalting high the glory of our Savior. You see, our God is the gracious and generous giver. He is the one that our text declares who created us and sustains us. He, he's the one who called us to himself. He, he's the one who gave us life in Christ. So when we transfer our anxieties on him, we are acting in those moments as these neon signs that are pointing to this wonderful character of his. We lift high his mercy and his compassion. John Piper captures the sense of this when he writes, God will not surrender the glory of being the giver. He asks the question, but is there not anything that we can give him that won't belittle him to the status of beneficiary? Yes, he says, our anxieties. It is a command. Cast all your anxieties on him. God will gladly receive anything from us that shows our dependence and his all-sufficiency. You see, through prayer, we are saying yes and amen to our poverty. And yes and amen to his riches. And so we're rightly locating the source of all blessings and all power, which glorifies him. And so prayer accurately proclaims his wonderful character. And it teaches each other something about this true and wonderful worldview that we see in Scripture. Brothers and sisters, friends, God's power, God's program, God's paternal concern and our poverty should put us on our knees. These truths should cause us to boldly and confidently and trust our souls to this faithful creator. When we believe these things, then we're going to trust in God's sovereign reign over our lives, and the fruit of that is going to be prayer. And our prayer and our prayer lives are going to reflect our desperation. It's going to reflect hearts that truly believe all of these things that we just mentioned. And so if we're not praying if we're not desperate in our prayer, then that lack of fruit would be indicating that we don't really believe the things that I have just talked about this morning. You see, we pray because God is the only one who has the power to do something about our situation. We pray because we trust in his program. And we're asking for strength to endure now until we are exalted. We pray because we are his paternal concern, because he cares for us. We pray because we understand our own poverty. Our need is desperate. 
And so we cry out to God because of who he is and what he has already accomplished and what he has promised to accomplish on our behalf and on Christ's behalf in the future. See, in and through the gospel, we have been intimately united with Christ. Our lives, our fates are mysteriously, inextricably intertwined with Christ. Can't be undone. We, we can't extract ourselves from being united to him. Our lives, our fates are bound to his. His suffering is our suffering. But his glory is also our glory. And so we humble ourselves by identifying with Christ in this life, come what may. Knowing, believing, trusting, embracing that in due time we will be exalted. That's how we endure. In our sufferings, then, we have the extreme privilege, though, to live out this mini-enacted parable that serves to highlight and proclaim our Savior's excellencies. And we need to understand that right now, today, as these events are going on, in this condition of uncomfortableness and discomfort and challenges, this is our joy. It's our joy to live out this mini-enacted parable. It's our joy to be neon signs to point to his glory. Isn't that amazing grace? This is for our joy, these trials and hardships. God is not allowing us to just coast through life worshiping ease and comfort and pleasure. And so because of these truths, when our sufferings are severe like John Bunyan's, we can trust in his sovereign reign over our lives. By God's grace and the strength of the Holy Spirit, we can endure 2020 with joy to the glory of Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this word of encouragement from our brother Peter. Lord, obviously we need help in believing these things truly. It is easy for us to give this lip service. Lord, we pray that this text would own us, that it would be part of who we are. So, Lord, we are desperate for you to strengthen us now. We're desperate for you to help us to encourage each other in these realities. Lord, help us to not be so nearsighted that we're, we're fixated on comfort and pleasure right now. So, Lord, set our hearts on eternity. For your glory, Christ's exaltation and our joy. Amen.